Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast? We've done more than 60 of them now. On our website, just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Ben Montgomery. Ben created the website gangry.com, which was the namesake for this podcast. He was on the show back in 2014 when we talked about his first book, Grandma Gatewood's Walk. He returned to the show in 2016 when he was part of a group of reporters and writers who talked about Michael Brick and the collection of Brick stories titled Everyone Leaves Behind a Name. Now he's back a third time to talk about his new book, The Man Who Walked Backward, an American Dreamer's Search for Meaning in the Great Depression. The book was published by Little Brown Spark in September and tells the story of a man named Plenty Wingo, who in 1931 attempted to walk around the world backward. Um, he just started training for it, trained for about six months, and, uh, and then set off in early 1931 uh, out of Fort Worth, Texas, wearing sunglasses that had um, rearview mirrors affixed to the sides of them so he could see behind him. Uh, and he set off on a quest to uh, become the first human to ever walk backward around the world. The last two times Montgomery was on the show, he was on the Enterprise team at the Tampa Bay Times. In 2017, though, he left that job so he could focus on writing his latest book. Now he finds himself teaching student journalists at the University of Montana as the T. Anthony Polner Distinguished Visiting Professor. I am teaching a class called Investigative Storytelling, and so I've encouraged my 14 students uh, to pursue one story that has some kind of an impact. Um, And uh, I've been essentially teaching them um, how to do investigative storytelling that people will read. Montgomery has now written three books. His first book, Grandma Gatewood's Walk, was a New York Times bestseller. His second book was titled The Leper Spy, the story of an unlikely hero of World War II. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in local reporting in 2010 for his series of stories on the decades of abuse at a Florida reform school for boys. He won the Dart Award and Casey Medal for the same series. As usual, We've linked to Montgomery's books and some of his stories from the Tampa Bay Times on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Ben, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. (laughs) This is your second time. You should be on this show more often, given the fact that I basically stole your name uh, for the show, (laughs) the name of your website. I uh yeah, but look what you've done with it, man. You you've um assembled um some of the best uh writers in the business to share their secrets and I imagine there are tons of people, myself included, who learn from this uh every time a new one goes up. I hope so. You are episode number sixty seven. Which is Wow, that's uh, quite a lot. It is. What do you, what are your what are your highlights, Matt? My highlights? Um What are the be- who who what are the best guests you've had? 
Well, Wright Thompson, when I had Wright Thompson on um, at the time, that was episode 12, I think, or no, episode 11, sorry. Um, that was amazing. Um, and I, I truthfully... Well, I can, I can do right. <laughs> I can do it. Well, you I can talk to you like, like Wright would talk to that's you. That's a good idea. You know, truthfully, I started this thing because I wanted to talk to like the best in the business. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to talk to them um, because I wanted to learn how to get better. Um, yeah. and, uh, obviously you helped me get in touch with a lot of people. Right. Was awesome. When I, when I did right. Um, uh, it was fun. I talked to David Grant not too long ago and that was a great episode. Um, uh, one of those, I think that was the first time I had to work through somebody's publicist to get them on the show. Is that uh, right? So I feel like you've made it as a show if you have to go through publicists. So, um, David seems like a pretty good guy. I, I, I um, we both did the, um, the first ever Oklahoma, book festival in Oklahoma city, um, last week or the week before. And I sat in on his session and, uh, 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 he was talking about killers of the flower moon and, um, seems like a really sharp guy and also like approachable and humble. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody who really loves the work, you know, truthfully, I got him on the podcast because I was reading killers of the flower moon and I had a puppy that ripped the book off the bookshelf and chewed up um, the entire back cover. Uh, and so I took a picture of it and I tweeted a picture of the cover and I said, look, David Grand, my dog has devoured your book faster than I did. Um, and he responded and I was like, okay, we, we got to get him on. The, we got to get him on the show. Fantastic. It was a good conversation. Yeah, it was awesome. It was good. Yeah. It was good. It was good. So no, I, I can't believe 67. I technically, this is the third episode you were on. Um, yeah. you were on episode 21, uh, talking about grandma Gatewood's walk. Um, and then you were on what, what remains, I think one of my favorite episodes of all time was the episode when we, we talked about Michael Brick, um, yeah. which, uh, uh, is remains one of the most popular episodes in terms of downloads and listens, uh, that, that I've done since, uh, yeah. since we've been doing this. So, um, it's uh, very so, good. Yeah. I still think about him all the time and I'm, I'm, uh, next week uh teaching from his book everyone leaves behind the yeah. name uh to um my students here at the university of montana um and i'm really looking forward to it because it seems like rick's work the stuff that that we collected in that book uh stand, you know certainly stands the test of time and um it is uh i only wish we still had him around to talk about it yeah you know, how he did it, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, his, that, that book is amazing. Um, and all of his stuff in there is amazing. And I, I like to pull stuff out of there and teach it as well. So it's uh, uh, just great stuff. So um, speaking of great stuff, um, we should talk about The Man Who Walked Backward. Yeah, if you'd like to, sure. <laughs> so, um, so this is your third book, right? Uh, first with Little Brown. Um can you uh, tell me a little bit about Plenty Wingo? Yeah, um, uh, Plenty Wingo, uh, Plenty Lawrence Wingo owned a cafe in Abilene, Texas in the 1930s. And uh, when the bottom fell out of the stock market and things started to go south on the front end of the Great Depression, he lost his uh, cafe to the bank, couldn't pay the bills. And um, so he signed himself out of work. Uh, he went to work flipping waffles at a, do you flip waffles? I, I always say that, but <laughs> <laughs> he found himself making waffles at a greasy spoon in Abilene. He was making like, um, 
you know, 12, 17 cents an hour, something like that. Uh, his take-home pay was pitiful, and he decided that um, he wasn't going to do this anymore. And he got he seized on a crazy idea to try to walk around the world backward. Um, and he started training for it and trained for about six months and uh, and then set off in early 1931 uh, out of Fort Worth, Texas, wearing sunglasses that had um, rearview mirrors affixed to the sides of them so he could see behind him. Uh, and he set off on a quest to uh, become the first human to ever walk backward around the world. How many he, how many miles did he end up accomplishing? He walked 8,000 miles uh, backward, which um, solidified his place in the Guinness Book of World Records as a backward walking champion. You could look you look at the record today, and uh, and he's still got it. Imagine that nobody has ever tried to walk backward eight, more than eight thousand. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, how how did you come across this uh, this guy? I was uh, researching um, researching crazy pedestrian stunts for uh, for Grandma Gatewood's walk. I just found myself reading a lot about about walkers and. Um, I, uh, you know, kept going down these rabbit holes. The first person to you know, walk from Chicago to New York and the first person to walk across the country. And there's a guy, it seems like, in the 1880s who um, who walked 1,000 1, miles, but he walked only one mile per hour. And it was on a bet. Uh, like his buddy had offered, you know, seven Cornish game hens if he could do this or something like that. Um, and that's... That's pretty, you know, it's pretty incredible walking one mile per hour. We normally walk three or four miles per hour. Right, right. We're walking one mile per hour every single hour for more than two weeks, which is uh, just unbelievable. Um, anyways, I stumbled across uh, the name Plenty Wingo, and I think at the time he had a Wikipedia entry that said something like, uh, Plenty L. Wingo is the backward walking champion of the world. He walked 8,000 kilometers backward in 1931. Um, and that was about it. There's a couple of lines, no real detail on his life. And, uh, did, you know, that day, I want to say, I did a, a little bit of searching and couldn't really turn up anything. And so he existed as a question mark in my head for a long time. And I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't... Um, like get him out of my mind for some reason mm. that the novelty of uh what he did and the time in which he did it which i knew a little bit about um made it so that i couldn't forget him mm -hmm. and i did uh you know i finished grandma gatewood's walk and i i did um a book called the leper spy about a woman who was a hero uh spy for the u.s during world war ii and my agent, you know, naturally started asking what the next idea was. And, um, I thought, let me see if I can learn something about Plenty Wingo. So that started the long journey of mm -hmm. like trying to understand his life and who he was. And also that, that fascinating era, uh, the, the early 1930s right, when, right. um, when I think we were at our worst. Mm -hmm. Right. How how long did it take you to be looking into him when you when you really started thinking there's definitely there's definitely a book here? It took a little bit, you know. My kids, I have a fourteen year old, a twelve year old, and a nine year old, and I I um, 
they're they're my my dear friends and my uh, trusty, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Not it's not editors, but I bounce all my ideas right. off of them. What do you think about this? And I'll try to entertain them, the style in which I tell it. And if they like it, then you know maybe there's something there. Um, and I told them the story of Plenty Windows. I you know spent off time reporting uh, for a couple of weeks, and then I told them the story and. Um, they hated the idea hilariously. <laughs> they were like, who's going to want to read this dad? And, uh, I thought, well, I still got some work to do. And so, and so, um, I don't know, probably, uh, probably, uh, I sat with it, learned more about him. Um, I, he wrote a memoir that can only be found in, or at the time could only be found in a couple of, special collections in two or three uh, Texas libraries. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to read that, but I also, in that weird, fraught period before you know something is a book, you don't want to spend money on an airplane ticket just going to Houston so you can, you know, read a book that's in a special, you know, in special collections. So I hire a young photographer from Houston to go to the Houston Public Library and just take a photograph of every page of his book and basically load them all into a Google drive, uh, folder for me to read. So after I read his account, I thought, you know, this is writing just wasn't his thing, but the story is there. And I think that's kind of when I decided, um, you know, let's, let's go forward with this, uh, pitch this. And I've, I should say, I've always been fascinated with that period of time. My grandfather Mm -hmm. grew up in, uh, Slick, Oklahoma, and in uh, 1933 or 34, he hitched a ride to California with the great migration of Okies and Arkies. Um, you know, so he could go get a get a job uh, uh, in a peach cannery. Mm-hmm. Um, and he always told us that you know, so he was in so he was in Oklahoma at the at the time through the early 30s, and he always told us that we ate. Uh, we ate dried fruit for breakfast, drank water for lunch, and swelled up for dinner. <laughs> and he said it as a kind of a joke, but right. there was some truth to it, you know? Right. Those were really, really hard times for a lot of people. A quarter of the population could not find work. Uh, eight million men, mostly men, were crisscrossing the country riding boxcars just to try to find a town where they, you know, where they could get a job. Um it was a very violent era. Police, you know, the the highest um, death toll in any year mm. in American history was 1930 for officers in the line of duty. Right. 330 cops were killed. Um, so you had outlaws running around the South, and you had Al Capone and others running Chicago and New York. Uh, Prohibition was on its last leg. Um you know the the number of lynchings had really spiked mm-hmm. in the twenties into the thirties. Uh, so there's racial violence. Um, how the the states of Oklahoma and Texas were about to go to war over a toll bridge over the Red right. River. This is a period of time when people were at each other's throats. Hitler was on the rise in in Europe, following this mass wave of uh, nationalism in Germany. So. Um, so in a way, when I started really thinking about doing this book, it was not just to tell this quirky story of Plenty Wingo, but to have um, kind of a novel, uh, fun, 
quest story that allowed me to, um, uh, uh, you know, br- um, bring people through that era so, right. so that, you know, so that we could, so we could learn about what was going on in the thirties. Right. Right. And a ton of quirky stuff that we've just completely forgotten. Like, uh, the very f- 1930, the very first photographic evidence of the curvature of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, 1930, is the year in which the Star Spangled Banner becomes the national, officially the national anthem. Uh, so 31. So all of these, you know, all of these like things that make us who we are and that shape the country came about in 30. The, the, the phrase American dream was coined in 1930 in a book by John Trunslow Adams. We had before that thought about the, uh, the American dream as, as Western, Westward, westward expansion, you know, um, pioneerism, and for the first time, because uh, because the frontier had been closed, it had all been settled. Uh, John Trunslow Adams posits that the American dream is um, settling in and getting engaged civically in your community, and so there's just a lot of interesting stuff happening in that period of time. And this story uh, let me dip into all that stuff. Right. And he becomes like kind of a Forrest Gump type character, mm-hmm. um, because he comes in close proximity with so many interesting things and interesting people from that period. Yeah. The, that was one of the crazy things, right? Cause he actually was marching through Germany as Hitler was coming to power. Um, he walked into Berlin I'm sorry, walked out of Berlin the day that Hitler, the day in February of 1932 that Hitler announced he was running for president. Right, right. That was... Which is crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. When, yeah. when you, when I you, couldn't put them in the same room together, but they were right. like blocks They were apart, close, they know? were close. Yeah. When, right. when you do a book project like this, and, and now all three of your books have been kind of based in history, right? I mean, they're... Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Grandma Gatewood's walk obviously uh, was taking place in uh, the fifties, the nineteen fifties, or and before even. Yep. Um, the, the leper spy uh, was a World War II book in a lot of ways, and now um, plenty. Wingo, um, how do you how do you do the reporting uh, for for a project like this, especially this book, which is actually the bulk of it is taking place even earlier than some of the other stuff that you've done. Yeah, um, I have a very active uh, subscription to newspapers.com, which is uh, uh, a better and better digitized uh, internet searchable archive of old newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Uh, the, the, so reporting a story like this, you, you're after two things. Uh, one, the reporting of his story in particular. Two, the context. Uh, so I've got to learn about that that period of time, uh, as well as about his very specific journey. Um, so, uh, I just start reading, you know, I buy every book that, um, was on the bestseller list in 1931 and 32. Um, I watch every film I can get my hands on, uh, from that era, by the way, Scarface came out in 31. It was in production in 31. I think it came out in 32, uh, the original Scarface. Um, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the reading of, uh, archival newspaper material is another big deal because a lot of times, 
little important incidents get overlooked by history mm-hmm. and sort of get get forgotten, and they certainly don't make the history books. And so, uh, I look for those little cultural nuggets that um, help the reader understand where we come from uh, that can serve as a context for a story like this. And I almost think about it like I'm going to report the era as hard as I report the, the human. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very simple arc for Plenty Wingo. Uh, right. So, but I want to I want to create a character out of the time almost. Um, and then in you know in reporting his trip, I followed his footsteps. I I went. Uh, I didn't do his. I didn't follow his entire route across the United States, but I followed big chunks of it. Mm-hmm. Things that I thought would be important for the book. Um, and then I I flew to Hamburg, Germany, and uh, took uh, trains, cars, and <clears throat> buses from Hamburg to Istanbul, following his exact. Uh, route stayed in, you know, Berlin and Dresden and Hamburg, but also like small towns mm-hmm. like, uh, uh, you know, Yablanitsa, Bulgaria, where um, I slept on top of a mountain in the Balkans and uh, tried, <laughs> tried to, you know, tried to communicate with the elders in the community uh, to see if anybody remembered this white Texan who walked through Bulgaria in 1931. Um so it was. It turns out it was pretty fun uh, reporting this book. You know, yeah. just give me give me a chance to see that part of Europe and uh, and again to learn about this period of time. I've always been fascinated by, but I've never really sunken my teeth into. Right, right. I love that you mentioned newspapers. dot com. I literally just um, I, I just resubscribed yesterday. Um, yeah. I had used it uh, for some of my SB Nation stuff that I had done um, mm-hmm. in the past. Um, but, uh, I wanted to, uh, I, I was actually, I, I resubscribed for, uh, for some teaching, uh, stuff that I'm doing in one of my classes. Um, it's a fantastic I, resource. I cannot believe how much more they've added since the last time, you know, I, w- I was using it. Um, I used it a lot on my Stella Walsh story for SB Nation. Um, uh, it was one of my primary sources for, for, for that Olympian in 1932, um, yeah. and it's, it's fantastic. I actually, uh, we were, I had that class read, um, spectacle, um, uh-huh. the lynching of Claude Neal, uh, for our class yesterday. And so we went in and, and I told him the, about your book. And so we started, we started, um, searching plenty Wingo and, and we started finding the stories and I'll bet. And I was like, I bet Ben used this story when he was, when, he, <laughs> when he was writing this book. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I guarantee I did, uh, it, yeah, I'm just looking at it now. 442 million pages. I know. Uh, and that's from more than 1,100 newspapers from the 1700s to the 2000s. Right. So it's, it's, and it, they add new stuff every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is invaluable. And the search function, I, I find, better on newspapers.com than it is a lot of other places. Yeah. The Google News Archive started a thing similar that they abandoned, but the search function that is um, cumbersome and mm-hmm. really difficult. You right. don't know if you're getting what you're looking for. And, uh, I did a uh, similar deal, Matt, with my students um, early on in this semester. Uh, I had them listen to Decoration Day by Jason Isbell, <laughs> and uh, and I, I gave them access to newspapers.com and the Google News Archives and some other archival stuff, and I said, 
try to prove or disprove this story based on the lyrics, based on what we you know hear him singing about. And of course, it's it is based on a a true event, uh, a um, a feud between two families and the deep south and uh so they had a blast spent like an hour and a half my students learning how to navigate the newspaper archives and like turning up uh information on on this feud and the ensuing trial and um it was a fun experience yeah do you like going down that rabbit hole because i know for me if i start uh searching for anything uh on an archive uh site like that or I mean, even at a historical society, I can like lose myself and and not realize what time it is. Is that does that go for you too? Oh, it's exactly how I operate. Um, I can, you know, like uh, I I find I find like I'll just find like something will pop into my mind that might be interesting to tell a story about that. I wonder if I can create a search string that will introduce me to stories I've never heard about that, uh, that deal with, um, you know, whatever subject it is I'm thinking of. And in fact, the book that I just pitched, I sort of, I found the story, uh, searching the newspaper archives. Hmm. Um, I hesitate to say anything about it because it's not yet bought, but, uh, (laughs) I do that. I do that all the time. Um, how how do you keep uh, yeah how do you keep um how do you keep um on uh, task when you're doing that type of stuff you know what i mean uh, because it would, it's so easy to like you go down one hole it's like you get to underground tunnels and before you know it how do you get back to wherever wherever the hell it was that you started <laughs> at least that's a yeah, problem for me right i mean how do you, how do you do you do it successfully obviously because you've got three amazing books uh, that, that I don't required know. this. I, I don't know if it's successful, though, because like I, I can't tell you how much time I spent just thinking about Plenty Wingo and why a guy would try to walk backward around right. the world in 1931, because uh, it was two years, you know, um, maybe longer than that, between the time I first stumbled across his name and the time I actually started to put together a book proposal. Um, so I don't know if I ever, like, you know, if something interests me at it's hard for me to even let it go. Uh, right. Stuff that I'm thinking about right now that, you know, I spend five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes searching, searching around on learning about might be the next book. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I live my life in those rabbit holes. Um, and it, you know, often is a giant distraction and uh, whatever, but it's fun. I, I uh, it, you know, I think sort of the best journalists are, those who just can't sleep at night because they have curiosities about a million different things. Right. Uh, and right. you know, it's a blessing and a curse, I guess. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I, you were still working at the Tampa Bay times when you started researching this book. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and I left the times in October of 2017 and I, and the, the manuscript was due to little Brown, um, on uh, like December 12th, I think, of that same year. So mm. it's been my very first experience not having to punch a clock uh, and write a book in extra time. So I started writing that manuscript, you know, in early October and finished on deadline. Um, and it was it was fantastic. It's so much better <laughs> this right. way 
Uh, doing grandma gay was walking the leper spy. I'd have to come, like I'd work all day and then I'd um, come home at night and put the kids in bed and go right for five or six hours. And it's like, you know, really burning the midnight oil and it's exhausting. And I would come home and, and find that I wasn't like, you know, I'd lost any kind of creative energy. And so I'd have to try to tap that creative energy and it just became a big burden. And I felt like I was going crazy. So this, um, this break was timely and perfect mm-hmm. and, and really for the first time I had a fun time writing a book. <laughs> right. Right. Do you, um, yeah, I was going to ask like, what, what, what was the difference between this and, and grandma Gatewood's Walker, the leper spy, but maybe that's it, right? The, the fact that you, you weren't double overtiming it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I had, you know, I could wake up in the morning and, um, and breathe, um, and have a cup of coffee and then start work. And I wasn't on the hook for a crazy word count shoved into the wee hours, uh, of night. So it, you know, it was just fun. It was like writing should be. (laughs) And I feel like the, uh, you know, I feel like the, I feel like that paid off in a big way. Um, one of the, one of the reviews in the library journal, it got a, was fortunate enough to get a starred review and the guy said it reads like good literature. And I thought that's the first time anybody's ever said that about, you know, about a book of mine. And it, it feels good, but I think it's because I just had, you know, time to think and time to be creative and, um, and the time to really, to really do the work. Right. And I like, I like hitting deadlines. Like that's, you know, uh, I know certain people might miss a deadline by a year, two years, three years, whatever. If I promise a book by December 1st, I want to get it to right. you by December Definitely. 1st. And, um, I always wind up asking for, give me five more days. And, you know, right. that's typically right. enough, but, I think that's a journalist thing, though, right? We have to hit the deadline, uh, you know, because yeah. because that's what we've been trained to do our our entire lives. So, yeah, um, and publishers appreciate it. Yeah, um, right. I'm sure you know. Although I think Tom's, you know, is 20 years behind a deadline uh, for a book contract <laughs> that he's got, but I know he's writing it right now, so um, he's gonna yeah. he's gonna he's gonna hit it. He's just going to be a little bit late, so. <laughs> well, and it'll probably be fantastic. I'm, I'm sure, sure it will be. be. I'm sure it'll be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, Ben, we're going to take a short break. Um, we will uh, be back in one minute with more from Ben Montgomery, the author of The Man Who Walked Backward. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. 
For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Ben Montgomery. In September, Little Brown Spark published his book, The Man Who Walked Backward. Ben, earlier uh, this year, actually it was last year, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago for some reason, but uh, you left the Tampa Bay Times to focus writing to focus on writing this book, um, and obviously, hopefully, future books, which maybe that's the case. Um, yeah. What What has it been like for you? You talked a little bit about that um, um, before the break, but just in general, what's it been like for you to go from somebody who, um, you know, is it a daily newspaper, um, yeah. uh, to somebody who is now a book author? Well, I mean, it was a little scary at first, um, because that's, Three, I have three kids, and uh, you know, leaving uh, a job I'd had for twelve and a half years um, was really kind of stepping into the unknown a little bit. But um, I'm very lucky that Grandma Gatewood's Walk was a successful book, and um, so financially, uh, you know, I can afford to do this finally. Um, so. It's been pretty rewarding so far. I uh, I took uh, just kind of almost uh, well because I was interested in doing this. I took a job teaching at the University of Montana, uh, where I've been this fall um, as part of a sweet deal called the T. Anthony Palmer Professorship. Um, so it's like an endowed professorship, and they bring in a new working journalist every semester to teach one class that he or she designs and to advise the student newspaper. Um, so, it, you know, honestly, it's been very dreamy, Matt. Uh, I hope I can make this, you know, I hope I can make this work for a long time because this is um, quite the life. So um, so you're advising the student newspaper. Uh, I've done that. Um, I did it for eight years in Ohio, uh, and I'm back to advising the student newspaper here at Fairfield University. I started back this semester um, and I did not realize how much I missed it. Uh, the two years yeah. that I wasn't doing it. Um, yeah. what's that, what's that like for you? And, and what, what are the student journalists? What, what are they doing? What are they working on? Um, well, I am, uh, I am teaching a class called investigative storytelling. And so I've encouraged my 14 students, uh, to pursue one story that has some kind of an impact. Um, and uh, I've been essentially teaching them, um, you know, how to do investigative storytelling that people will read when it comes right down to it. Uh, and then the, uh, the the student paper is called the Montana Kaiman, and it's made up of a paid staff. It's totally independent, so uh, so they do their own thing. They come up with their own stories. They write their own stories. They edit their own stories. I'm just there to... Um, provide encouragement and feedback and, you know, maybe save them from themselves every once in a while. (laughs) Um, but they've been doing some cool stuff and I, you know, I, I I can't, I can't stop, uh, the idea generation. So I'm always like thinking of, um, you know, I have little curiosities like I did as a newspaper reporter. And now I have a a gaggle of students who can go chase, chase down the answers for me. I just (laughs) have to bring it to their pitch meeting and, um, and they've actually turned a couple of my ideas into stories that I, I think are just great. I get tickled by it. Uh, when I first got to Missoula, 
um, I was wondering what I should do that evening, and I, I jump on this uh, event listings page called MissoulaEvents.net, and I realized very quickly that there's more things going on in Missoula than anybody could ever do in one 24-hour period. And so my first pitch uh, at the very first newspaper meeting, I said, um, somebody go on MissoulaEvents.net and try to do every event that's offered. And they jumped all over it. So this um, uh, very talented student, uh, Ryan O'Connell, started his morning at, you know, yoga for seniors at 6 a.m., and went to story time at the library and, um, you know, prayer meeting at uh, the Catholic Church and uh, wound up, I think, late at night, 11.30 p.m., singing all by himself at a karaoke bar in Missoula. Uh, and he, he did all this <laughs> stuff, and then he wrote about it. And um, it was a blast to read, you know. It was so cool to see them, like, get a good idea and, and run with it and get excited about it. And, that tickles me that the next generation, uh, they're still pumped up about journalism mm-hmm. and, um, you know, doing fun stuff like that, but also like holding people to account and, uh, and, um, uh, protecting their own futures and, um, making names for themselves. And it's, it's, it's really rewarding to see, you know, I'd love to like continue to, uh, continue to do this, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, do you, what do you uh, do? You like being in the classroom? Um, for me, when I first left newspapers and and started teaching, I felt like I had no clue what I was doing. Um, uh, but I loved it, anyways. Um, do you yeah. do you enjoy it? What do you What do you like about it? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a blast. Um, I'll tell you what I like most about it. I set up so you, you know this sweet professorship is structured such that. Uh, the visiting professor um, writes his own syllabus and mm-hmm. sets up the course. So um, I brought in, I would teach every Monday and then um, assign two or three stories uh, to be read by Wednesday. And the stories were always written or edited by the guests that we would have in class on nice. Wednesday. So um, so we had uh, just a ridiculously fantastic assortment of guests to the classroom and, and via Skype. Um, it's like Bill Durie and Michael Cruz from Politico and Maureen Dowd and Carl Hulse from the New York Times and Thomas Lake and Tony Rehagen and Wright Thompson and Leah Satilli and Kelly Benham. Um, it was a... It was just a really uh, great time, and it's great. I have my grad students uh, annotate every story that we read, and I have my undergrads develop a set of nice. questions, five questions each for the guests that they have about the work. Um, and so it's great to see them, like, really get into it right. and, uh, uh, you know, start to diagnose the stories and um, learn from, you know, Great, great journalists. No, that re- uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. It reminds me of back when I taught that uh, narrative journalism class in Ashland, and I had uh, actually that was when you came up to Ashland and did a reading from Grandma Gatewood's yeah. walk. And that one night in that class, we had you, Jim Sheeler, and we skyped with Luke Dittrich, um, which was uh, so much fun. So, it, um, it, and it seems to stick too. I did some, I did some, you know, off the books research before I started putting this class together, and I asked some. Uh, 
younger friends like Charlie Scudder at the Dallas Morning News mm-hmm. and Brendan Meyer at the Dallas Morning News. What do you remember from college? Right. Like, what were the best classes? And Charlie had, had come through IU, which is a great program, and Brendan had come out of Mizzou, uh, also a great program. And both of them said, when we read work uh, and then and then got to talk to the writer, right. um, it's for whatever reason it sticks. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Definitely. It was a blast. I learned, you know, I learned more than the kids did. I guarantee. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's how it is for me as well. I'm always, I think, I feel like I'm always learning more each uh, each semester, uh, yeah. which is which is a good thing to do. So, yeah. Um, well, once you're uh, once you're done in Montana, what's going on? I'm gonna go back to Tampa. I miss my kids. Um, I'm gonna go back to Tampa, and um, hopefully, I have a, a fourth book uh, proposal sold by then, and. Ideally, uh, I'll start working on working on that thing in earnest. Uh, I think I might teach a class at the University of South Florida mm-hmm. uh, in the spring, and um, and use the summertime for uh, travel and reporting the next book. Um, and then after that, we'll see. Well, that sounds uh, like a pretty fun agenda. So, um, Ben. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I cannot thank you enough uh, because this podcast would never have existed if gangry.com did not exist, uh, which I well, stumbled upon we, in 2006 when I was a reporter at the Columbus Dispatch. Uh, so, yeah. Well, we all owe you a, a, a debt of gratitude, Matt, for uh, starting the podcast and um, and uh, helping us all uh, you know, get sharper and get better at what we do. Well, Ben, uh, author of The Man Who Walked Backward, uh, it is a great book. Uh, I would recommend that uh, all of our listeners read it if they haven't already. Ben, thanks a lot for stopping by. You got it, Matt. Thanks for having me. I've been talking with Ben Montgomery. Ben is the author of The Man Who Walked Backward, an American dreamer's search for meaning in the Great Depression. The book was published by Little Brown Spark in September. As usual, we've linked to this book, plus more of Montgomery's work, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.